Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again. If you have a Bible, we invite you to open it to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, as you can see on the screen already, our, our Advent theme is joy this week. But before we get to the scriptures, um, let's just identify that, that life is hard, right? Uh, not something you didn't know already, uh, but many, many of us sitting here this morning have, uh, even in this past year, experienced uh, trouble, uh, whether it's your own sickness or the sickness of a friend, uh, loss or the death of someone close to you, whether it was a, an emotional um, issue, whether it was a physical issue, whether it was a spiritual issue, a family issue, another relationship, uh, all of us uh, can probably identify to some degree with a, a measure of, of sadness, right? So we come into uh, this time of year, and we hear people say, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and have a Merry Christmas. And some of you think to yourself, well, maybe that's easy for you to say. <laughs> you, you don't know what I've been through this year or last year, or 10 years ago, that I still carry, right? All of us carry different things. All of us carry our grief uh, differently. So you might find it difficult this year uh, to find Christmas uh, very merry, or to find joy at all. Um, and it might not just be during these weeks of the year either. Sadness and grief are realities of life. Even though we wish it were not so, it's true. We, we know it to be true. We, we feel it to be true. So I say that because I don't want to in any way communicate as we talk about this subject this morning, anything that sounds trite or presumptuous or just do it, just be joyful, just have joy, 
just have joy this season. Um, there is a real tension for us between what is uh, maybe what we might say theoretical and what is actual. And sometimes when we talk about the Bible, and sometimes when you hear sermons, they are almost um, theoretical. Like, that sounds really good. (laughs) But this is where I live, right? We might say it this way, that preaches easier than it lives, right? That's the ideal, okay, Everybody can agree on that. But the reality is, it isn't always that easy, right? It doesn't seem that easy. And though the dichotomy between ideal and real might not be as distinct as we think it is, we feel like it is. We feel like sometimes what the Bible is saying and how my life is actually going are are two different things. And so what I don't want to do today is, is, is in any way put some sort of bumper sticker onto uh, the Christmas season of, of this theme of joy, when the truth is, is that some of you are dealing with a lot of sadness, a lot of grief, a lot of suffering. And so a message on joy might um, feel a little difficult for you today. It might feel a little counterintuitive for you today uh, because of where you're at even this morning. So what do we do with that? Well, last week, Pastor Chris started in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And he pointed us to hope. He read it this morning for us. This living hope that we have in Jesus. I was on vacation, and I think uh, some of you may have had a vacation Sunday as well because of the weather. Um, but you can maybe re-listen to that message at another time. But the, the theme was, was hope. Right? The theme was that, that in Christ, this Advent season uh, holds for us hope. Actually, the hope of the world, whether people even believe that or not. That Jesus actually holds uh, the hope of the world that we can have hope in him, in what he has done and what he will do, that being ultimately his second coming. In the next number of verses, we see the theme that we want to look at this morning, the theme present in verses 6 through 9. And here Peter talks about trials and rejoicing. It's already been read for us, but... Just look at it quickly here. In this, that is talking about verse 5. If you just look back up into verse 5, it says, By who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Verse 6, in this, in the salvation that's ultimately coming at the return of Christ, uh, you rejoice. And then a few verses later in verse 8, he uses... Uh, rejoice again. So there's this uh, re- repetition of the theme of rejoice or to have joy. Uh, many of us have to wear uh, eyeglasses, right? And uh, my eyes are, are very, very bad. And if I were to take off my glasses, the way that I would experience the world would be very, very different than I do with my glasses on, right? Can anybody give me an amen to that? Feel, feel, feel my pain, right? Okay, all right. So 
here's, the, here's what may be true for some of us. For some of us, our experience in the world um, would be very different uh, if we viewed the world differently. Meaning, the lens by which we view our life, the world, our experiences, impact the way we think about those experiences, right? So if I take off my glasses, the, the things I experience, the way that I interpret what I think is happening may not actually be happening, right? You might all leave and I think you're still here, right? <laughs> right? But that would be how I experience it. But if I put my glasses on, then I, then I see the reality. I see, oh, this is what's actually happening. And you see, one of the reasons why we, we lack joy in our life may very well be because of how we're viewing the world. We think the world should be like this, fill in the blank. And yet the world isn't like that. We need new lenses, if you will. So when it comes to joy, what do we even mean? What, what is our, our understanding of this word? Well, let's share a few definitions or a few thoughts on joy. Joy is not simply a momentary emotional outburst, right? You've had those. That's not joy, right? The idea of, of a, a celebration, the idea of your sports team winning or you getting a present or whatever you fill in the blank of what would give you an emotional outburst, that's not joy. Nor is joy a response to a given circumstance that might elicit an expression of joy. Meaning, those two things are saying this, that joy is neither emotionally driven, nor is it circumstantial. Joy has emotions connected to it. That's absolutely true. But joy as a reality is not emotionally driven, nor is it based on circumstance. And we see this in a passage like Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And we need to remember that, that Paul is in a Roman prison as he is writing that. It's easy to say rejoice, maybe on Christmas morning when you're surrounded by your friends and your family and everyone's healthy and everyone's happy and your finances are in good shape and you have food on the table and everything is going swell. Rejoice. Yeah, of course. Everyone can get in line with that. But in prison, separated, not sure of what the future holds, and he's saying rejoice. The, the, the point of, of what Paul is saying is not, not rejoice in your circumstance. It's rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say just rejoice. He qualifies it. He qualifies it by saying where the rejoicing is, rejoicing in the Lord. One Bible dictionary says of joy, joy is a quality not simply an emotion, a quality grounded upon God himself and indeed derived from him, which characterizes, joy characterizes the Christian's life on earth and also anticipates an eschatological, eschatologically, that means in the end, the joy of being with Christ forever. 
That's what joy is. So let me, let me repeat that. Joy is grounded upon God himself because it's derived from him. He's the giver, right? Joy is a gift that God gives. It characterizes our life as a Christian on this earth. We're going to see that in verse 8. And it also anticipates that one day, one day we will experience this joy in full forever in the kingdom. And we know that because of a place like Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, that says this. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made ready herself. We look forward to that day. Right? We look forward to that day. That's joy in full, finally and ultimately. Timothy Keller says it this way, real joy is the delight in God for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. Joy is not based on emotion. It is not based on circumstance. It is based on who God is. Well, we told you to go to 1 Peter chapter 1, so back to that. Here in these verses... um, Peter identifies that joy and trials go together. This is actually a thing in the Bible where we see suffering and joy together. That there can be joy and suffering, joy in the midst of this suffering or in the midst of these trials. That seems counterintuitive to some of us, right? Like how could you be joyful when it's hard? Isn't joy the absence of hardship? No, it is not. Remember, this is Peter, right? Peter, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we remember that Peter had an experience in chapter 5, where he and the other apostles are preaching about Jesus, and they're arrested, and they're brought before the council, and the council um, consults together. They say, we're going to um, punish them. They beat them, and then they threaten them. Don't do this again. And then they release them. And in verse 41, we, we see this, that as they left, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. <laughs> that seems like a very strange response to suffering, is to rejoice. And yet that is this strange uh, paradox for the Christian, that suffering and joy can and do often go together. As we said, this is Peter. So Peter knows a thing or two about hardship. He knows a thing or two about trials, about rejoicing. And he shares that here with these Christians and with you and I today, with you and me today in 1 Peter chapter 1. The first thing he tells us is that trials meet needs. Look at it again. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary. Or some of your Bibles say, if need be, meaning that trials meet needs. Maybe a need like discipline. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Trials have a way of of bringing us back. Trials meet the need of preparing us for spiritual growth or preventing us from going down a wrong road into sin. We think of, we think of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 
when he is writing about his thorn in the flesh. And he asks for God to remove the thorn in the flesh. We're not exactly sure what the thorn in the flesh is. And quite frankly, not knowing is probably better uh, because we can, all, uh, we can all agree that there are things in our life that uh, we wish weren't there. <laughs> we wish it would go away. We wish that the conflict or the problem would be removed or the hardship, whatever it is. But Paul says that that thorn of the flesh was in order to keep him from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul asked for it to be removed, and when God said no, he understood it then as a way of, of sanctifying him, as a way of guarding him against sin and making him more like Jesus. We should note here that trials are different than judgments or punishments. Um, God disciplines those he loves. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us. He absolutely disciplines those he loves. He brings trials into the life of his children in order that his will might be done, whatever that is. But God does not condemn a believer, does not judge a believer. Why do we know that? Because of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's not mad at you. The trials that are in your life, God's not getting you back. Christian, he's not getting you back. God's not a God of karma. You don't get what you deserve. If you got what you deserved, you'd never get anything good. You know that? But God does, in fact, send trials. And he sends trials that are different. We see that in verse 6. They're varied or they're manifold. They're diverse. You have been grieved by various trials. James says this about that. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We'll look at the rest of that in just a moment. But, but trials are diverse. They're different for everyone. Your trial might not look like someone else's trial. You might think your trial is way harder than someone else's trial. That might be true. Nevertheless, the trials are different, and God matches the trial to our life, to our strengths, to our needs. Thirdly, trials are not easy. You see this, as he says, you have been grieved by various trials, or some of your Bibles say, in heaviness. Trials are heavy. Don't think you're alone. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew writes this, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Remember how Luke describes that? And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. <laughs> Think you've had sleepless nights? 
there's someone who can relate with that. Think you've had anxiety, think you've had trouble, concern about what the future holds for you, there's one who can relate with that. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he's writing to Christians, and Christians who have lost loved ones, other believers, and they're not sure what, what to think about. If Jesus comes back, what happens to our, our loved one who is, who's dead? And Paul says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who are falling asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. He doesn't say you may not grieve. He says you may not grieve like others who have no hope. Christians grieve. Christians should grieve. The trials in your life are worthy of grieving. They are grievous. They are hard. There's no sense in pretending that they're not hard, but God gives to us hope. One of the ways he gives us that hope is the fourth reason or the fourth thing about trials is that they're controlled by God. Though for a little while or for a season, the trials happen for a little while or for a season. Now, a little while and season is relative, isn't it? <laughs> Some of us who don't do well being sick, let's use that as an example, a little while could be a day or two, right? And we're a, we're a basket case, right? Uh, or, or if you, you have a spouse, your spouse is probably like, I can't wait till this person gets better, right? It's, you're difficult, maybe a difficult patient, some of us, right? But other of you, when, when we compare that, not all suffering is comparable, but we say this just to say that there's difference here. There's some of you who have dealt with illness and disease and sickness for years. There's no comparison to that. The point is, is this, is that when we say a little time or a season, it, it may not be little in what we sometimes think of little. For a season could be your life. But God controls it. However long God allows it, he allows it. It's his to control. Think of the story of Job. And we don't use the story of Job to make anyone feel badly about their suffering. Okay, That's not what we're doing. We're not saying, well, at least you're not got what Job got. Right? That's not what we're saying at all. Don't, don't hear me say that. This isn't a guilt-ridden, your suffering isn't that bad. That's not what I'm saying. But what we can see from Job is, is what it looks like to go through suffering. The kind of questions that Job asks, the, the honesty that he dealt with, but also the faith that he exhibited. In chapter 1, we hear this conversation that he has, that God has with, with Satan. And Satan has to get permission to test Job. Listen, if, if you hear nothing else this morning, <laughs> there is a great principle there for us to know. That nothing comes into your life that has not gone through the hand of God. Now, we talked about preaching easy, living hard. Right? Some of you say, well, what about, and you fill in the blank of a tragedy, right? Like, it's tough. Let, let me ask you this. What's the implication 
if we say it doesn't go through the hand of God first. We say someone else is calling the shot. We're saying someone else is ruling the roost. We're saying there's a plan that's going on that God can't control, that God is, is, is not over. No, absolutely not. God is God. He is sovereign over all. It does not feel good to say that God allows tragedy. It does not feel good. But the implications of saying that somehow someone else is orchestrating things and God has no power over it is worse. You don't want to believe that. You really don't. The implications on your life are not good if God is not sovereign. But he is. So you can know that it's not wasted, that God is controlling it. And so there's this conversation and God allows Job to be tested and it's a terrible outcome. He loses everything except for his wife and his health. 10 children, his home, all his livestock, his livelihood is gone. And his response is not trite, but this is what it was. Chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, you may not be there yet this morning, but take Job's example. Take his example. See how he responded. May God help us. Sadly for Job, Job, humanly speaking, this wasn't the end. Satan comes back for round two, doesn't he? And he said, well, of course he's going to continue to praise you. He's healthy. What will a man give for his health? How many times have you heard people talk like that? Well, at least I have my health. Right? as though our health is the singular thing that we should be thankful for. It is a thing we should be thankful for, but if God were to take that, would you still praise him? And God says, go ahead. You can touch him, but you can't take his life. And Job proceeds to touch him, or Satan proceeds to touch Job with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his foot. So badly that his wife says, won't you just curse God and finish this thing? Finish it. Now, a biblically-minded Christian reads her statement and says, whoa, woman, don't, don't say that. That's a, that's a terrible thing to say. But what if it was your spouse? And they were struggling. And they were suffering. You might say, there's a way out of this. There's a way for this suffering to stop. There's a way that this can all go away. Yes, it'll mean the loss of your life, but you're in suffering. There could be a way of seeing her as actually showing some compassion to the situation. Nevertheless, that's not how Job responds to her. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We keep going throughout the book of Job and we find him saying things like, though he slay me, though God slays me, yet I will hope in him. 
Or in chapter 23, when he's looking around and saying, I can't find God. I look to the left, he's not there. I look to the right, he's not there. Where is he? And then he says these words in chapter 23, verse 10. Words to memorize, friends. But he, God, knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Whatever comes to us comes first from the hand of God. God is in control of our trials. Finally, Peter tells us that the trials actually have purpose. Look at it in verse 7. So that. So that. Read it from the beginning of 6. In this you rejoice. Though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that. There's purpose. There's reason. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trials are meant to test our faith, to prove it sincere, in order that in our faith, God gets glory in order that through our faith, what may be found, the result is praise and glory and honor, ultimately at the revelation of Jesus. This proving of our faith, this proving sincere, this is what Abraham and Isaac, that story, right? This is where God says to Abraham, do this, sacrifice your son. And the proof that he actually believed God was that he was going to go through with it. He was actually going to do what, what all of us sitting here today would say, no way, no way. Well, what God was doing to, to Abraham was to say, do you, do you trust me? Do you love me more than this promised son? Are you willing to give up this very thing that you so love? James says of these trials that you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that it may be perfected and complete, lacking in nothing. So in trials, our faith grows and God gets the glory. God is at work in our trials. He is at work in your suffering. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this. We can ignore even pleasure. Let's go here. We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There's two ways to, to view our trials, our suffering, our hardship, our pain. One is to say, I can't believe in a God who would. The other is, what does God want from me? If he is not judging me, and we know he's not, then what is he doing in me now? In what ways is God at work in my life? How is he forming me? And again, we recognize pain is real, suffering is real, and yet God somehow, in some way, sovereignly is working it 
for his good. The only thing worse than suffering is meaningless suffering. Your suffering is not without purpose. And just because we cannot see a good reason for our trials does not mean there cannot be one. After all, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Most, many of us know that verse, right? Romans chapter 8, verse 28 does not say, we see that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Someone says. It doesn't say that we see it. It says that we know. That's very, very different. <laughs> this is the living by faith, not by sight. This is believing God's word even when you don't see it yet. This difference between see and know is a distinction with a difference. And it's actually a game changer. Because if you go through life, and the only way that you will interpret that God is doing something good is if you can see the good, <laughs> well, I'm not sure what you're going to conclude. Because you and I would look around this world right now and say, well, psh, I'm not quite sure what good is happening, right? You look around culture, you look around politics, you look around the world, and you say, well, not sure how that's going to happen. But it's not based on our sights. It's based on what God is doing and what we know of God. Verses 8 and 9 give to us this response. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What's the response here? That we would love him, we would believe in him, and we would rejoice in him. This rejoicing is in the trial. And he says that the rejoicing is joy that is inexpressible. Now, there are other words that are translated in the Bible, inexpressible, but this is the only word, this word in the Greek is the only time it's used. And inexpressible means what you would think. There aren't words to, to, to even come up with it. This, this joy is not even, we can't even put words to this kind of joy, is what Peter is saying. That this is the kind of response to what God is doing. Though we haven't seen him, right? we're all in that camp. <laughs> we love him. Though we do not see him now, you don't see him now either. We believe in him, that's faith. And we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with hope. Why? Verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. See, joy comes from knowing how well off we really are, not circumstantially. Peter is not pointing to circumstantial reasons for joy. See that? He's pointing to eternal reasons. He's pointing to spiritual reasons. He's pointing to God himself as the reason and the salvation that he has made possible for you and me. That's how joy works. Right? Left to ourselves, when we come to these trials, we're not responding in joy. That would not be our default response. We would be so caught up in our circumstances, so caught up in, in what we feel that we would never respond that way. How could we ever respond differently when there's something deeper, something more significant, 
that brings us joy than even our own happiness. For many of us, the response would rather be fear, right? We come into a trial, to a hardship, to a suffering. It's fearful. For many of us, we can relate with that. And yet, throughout the scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, we hear that refrain, fear not. God says that over and over again to us. Fear not, even in the midst of these trials. As we close, go to Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, we hear that same command of fear not. You remember this story. They're shepherds, and they're out in the field. And they're watching over their their flock. And um, verse 9 says, And an angel, this is chapter 2, Verse 9, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. It's the great Christmas story, right? They were filled with great fear. The glory of the Lord, the, the gl- word glory there is weight. The weight of the Lord shone around them, the, the angel, excuse me, and they were filled, the shepherds were filled with great fear. Uh, the glory of the Lord, God's presence, God's weight showed up. You know, sometimes maybe when you're a kid and uh, an authority walks in the room and you're like, you know the authorities in the room. You feel the authorities. In the room. Maybe it's a parent. Uh, maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's a principal. And you feel this sense of like, whoa, right? Someone, someone's here. Right? Some, something may not go well or it may go really well, right? Uh, one of the two is going to happen. Now imagine this. Imagine that uh, a million times, right? The glory of the Lord shows up. The way to the Lord shows up with his presence and they were filled with great fear. Yeah, which seems like a pretty appropriate response, right? To, to being presented with the glory of the Lord. This word fear is the Greek word where we get our word phobia, right? This is where that word comes from. And you probably would be fearful as well. All by yourself, alone in a field, maybe with your, your buddies who are shepherds, but you're alone and, and God shows up. And, and remember, the shepherds weren't like uh, the religious elite here. <laughs> they actually were considered not great guys. Their character was not so good. The reputation was not so good. And God shows up to them. I think there was, there was a, a measure of fear, a measure of guilt, a measure of I'm not sure what is actually going to happen. But here's what we need to know, that when God shows up, when the glory of God shows up, there is nowhere to hide. He exposes everything. He exposes us for who we really are. And so here are these shepherds faced with a a difficult situation and God shows up. There's no pretense. There's no hiding. We see this elsewhere in the scriptures where God shows up and people don't know what to do. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 6. And the response to this great fear, the angel said, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So the response to the great fear is that there can be great joy in the good news. John Piper says that Christmas is an indictment before it is a delight. And by that he means this. The indictment is that when God shows up, his glory exposes us for who we are. We read verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And we think that sounds awesome. But that's first an indictment. Why is it an indictment? Because if you need a Savior, what does that mean about you? That means you're a sinner. You need to be saved. 
you have a problem that someone else has to help you with. That's an indictment on us. And yet it's a delight because the Savior actually came. God's not just up there saying, you guys are a hopeless cause. You need something. No, he's saying, you need something and I have the resource to do it. It's myself and I'm coming to you. And he actually came. He actually came. Verse 12, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. What drives out fear? It's the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus came to save us. We can relate with those, those shepherds. We can relate with not being the sharpest knife in the drawer. We can relate with having a checkered past. We can relate with, with maybe having some, some problems in our life. Maybe our reputation isn't as good as we want. Maybe people think ill of us. We can relate with that. And yet God comes to them with this great message that isn't just for them, but it is for them. As it's not just for you, but it is for you. That there is a Savior who has come. Jesus said in Luke 5 that those who are well, they don't need a physician. The sick need the physician. He says, I've not come to call the righteous. I've, called, I've come to call the unrighteous. Who's that? It's everybody. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save not to be served, but to serve. Not to preserve his life, but to give his life. Now, if you don't know Jesus as Savior this morning, our invitation to you is to come to him in repentance. To see him as a Savior you need. Maybe you've experienced life and you've experienced difficulty and, and you're not sure, quite sure what to think about God. Here's what you need to know about God. God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. And that son came at Christmas. And he came in order not just to be born, but to die for you and me. In order that we could have life with him that begins now and lasts forever. Brother and sister, you may not feel particularly merry this season. But the invitation of Advent is for us to find our joy not in the presence of things, nor in the absence of difficulty, but in the presence of Christ himself. In good news, Emmanuel has come. God is with us. There can be joy, and it's in the person of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we rejoice this morning, not because life is perfect, not because everything has somehow magically worked out for our life, we rejoice that the one who knows us best loves us most. The only one who could, did. The only one who could die for us and give us life, did. The only one who could actually save us, did. That there is salvation made possible through Jesus, available today. That is worth rejoicing for. And yet, God, we realize that life is filled with with difficulty and with sorrow and with trial. And God, our prayer this morning is that you would help us to lean in and see what you are teaching us in this. That when your, your glory shows up, God, that we would see you for who you are, see ourselves for who you are, 
God, respond as you would have us to. Would you give us the faith to do that? For those who don't know Jesus this morning, I pray that you would give them faith to believe, repenting of their sins and trusting Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.